the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast that delves under the hood of the paranormal and has a little look at the points on the carburetor to work out where on earth things are going wrong. Ooh, I'm liking that. That's a good good intro. Um, yes, we are the quantum mechanics, and um, today, Ben, I wanted to talk. I guess it's paranormal with a small p. It's it's more in the strange and weird angle that we're going for. And it came about because I started to think about what is Britain famous for. So we've obviously got influential writers, Shakespeare, Oscar Wilde, uh, musicians, the Beatles, Stones, Bowie for modern day. Certainly. Warm beer. 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 Uh, Fish and chips. Fish and chips. Rain. Oh, rain. Yes, rain's very important. Good racing drivers was the other one I thought of. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Being incredibly polite. Yes, yes. Being incredibly attractive and charming. That's right. Um, Very straight teeth, I believe the Americans know (laughs) us for. Yeah, Yeah, we're very famous for that. But I, I guess... Today, what I wanted to focus on was I think we've got a proud tradition of eccentric behaviour. Oh, yeah, okay. I would say that's true, yes. And this was really sparked uh, by a brilliant book that I was given as a gift. Uh, And I've just not been able to put it down since I got it. It's by uh, an author called John Timpson, and it's called English Eccentrics. So John Timpson, he was a legendary journalist, radio and TV broadcaster. Uh, He sadly passed away in 2005. He had a real distinguished career and people in the UK will know this show includes presenting the iconic BBC Radio 4 show today. Uh, Oh, wow. Any questions? Yeah. He did the TV show tonight and he was an all-round, you know, great journalist who appeared on many other bits but he also wrote this great book called English Eccentrics and uh, that's what I wanted to focus on on today's podcast because that this book is brilliant it's got hundreds of great stories so as we always do when we look at uh, books we're only really going to scratch the surface of it Um, but if you like what you hear today uh, unfortunately the book is not currently in print uh, but I did a little Google around. You can still find like reasonably priced second-hand copies online. So like I saw a hardback that was about five quid or something like that. So um, yeah, I I'd thoroughly recommend the book. He was a he was a great broadcaster and journalist, and the book is well written and there's some great stuff. So should we get in? Just get straight into some of the stories, Ben. What do you think? Oh, certainly. I like. I've always considered like eccentricity being one of the best exports of the uk like now we've left europe and shellfish is difficult to get over the border (laughs) we can still take you know dressing up in the top half as a morning suit and the bottom half as a glittery yellow skirt and um Yep. you know smoke cigars all the way through meetings i like i some of our best showbiz people have been great eccentrics kenneth williams for example um yeah yeah just a great 
British person. He represented joy and laughter, but was also... I think there's a fine line between eccentricity and weirdness, but eccentricity suggests to me um, a sort of a playful, joyous side rather than a dark side. So I don't know if that is one thing that comes out in what you're going to talk about. Kind of. There's, I mean, the stories will cover. They, you know, the... The characters vary that I'm going to talk about today, but there is always something that's a little bit weird and charming about them, even if they're quite weird characters, if that makes sense. I think that's what you're stabbing at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so let's let's start with one and then we'll see. Um, I want to tell you about uh, a classic English eccentric called George Osborneston. Uh, so George Osbaldiston was born in 1787 and he was obsessed with riding and hunting. In fact, he devoted uh, so much of his time to his country pursuits that he was known by the nickname the Squire of All England. He famously once said that if he'd not spent six days in the saddle, it was a week wasted. At the age of 25, he became an English Member of Parliament, but he spent so little time there because of his horse riding uh, that he never actually got to give a speech. (laughs) So I think basically he never turned up. But but he got elected. He got elected, yeah, but you've got to remember this is, what, 17, you know, the late 17, early 1800s. Right, right. I think democracy was a looser concept back then, if you know, see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a prolific gambler. Now, I didn't realise this, but reading this book, that actually around the late 1700s and 1800s, gambling amongst the aristocracy and betting was huge, absolutely huge, and they would bet and gamble on anything. Um. And his love of gambling and riding collided in 1831 where he was challenged to a bet which he became legendary for. So for this bet, he was challenged to ride round and round the famous Newmarket horse racing course to see if he could cover 200 miles in less than 10 hours. Which is quite a feat, right? It is, but it seems like it... Well, it's a feat for him, but it's more of a feat for his horse. Well, I'll get on to that, actually. Okay, okay. So he, he, he accepted the bet, uh, but then someone came along and offered him better odds if he could complete the 200 miles in less than nine hours instead of ten. Oh, my God. And even though, <laughs> and even though this seemed even more impossible, he couldn't resist and he accepted the wager. But wait, so that is... Uh, if my schoolboy maths is right, that's an average of 22 miles an hour for nine hours. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. So he accepted the bet. So he turns up in uh, Newmarket Racecourse. He's now 44 years old. Uh, A young that Well, it doesn't sound that old, but in those days, that was probably, you know, you were probably getting on a bit then, right? I'm sure the the average life expectancy was a lot lower. Um, He turned up at the race course wearing a pink shirt, white breeches and a black velvet cap. And he started his 200 mile challenge just after dawn. 
He sounds like a dandy, by the way, in a good he way. Does, in a good yeah, way. Yeah, he does. He does sound quite dandy, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, like it. So incredibly, after just eight hours and forty-two minutes, he completed the two hundred mile ride, winning his bet. Wait, not on a not on one horse, though. Surely. Well, you, you're ahead of me here. To complete the bet, he had used a total of twenty-seven horses. Ah, oh, okay. Well. Th- Thank goodness, because I was <laughs> I was really worried for the horse then. Worried about that poor horse. I was horse, really yeah. worried about the poor horse, but that sort of makes <laughs> yeah. sense. So each horse is kind of going for it for about like seven and a half, eight miles. Yeah, and then he'd just get off and then they'd have another one lined up for him right, and he'd right. jump on that one and go. In fact, uh, during the whole eight hours and 42 minutes, he stopped only once to eat a partridge and to drink some brandy water. <laughs> To eat a partridge. <laughs> of course he did. Wait, did did he, he did. not wee or? I think, well, there's a thing, isn't there? Like I know like motor racing drivers, like when they do the Le Mans 24 hour and they have those long stints, um, I think modern times they wear nappies and stuff, like giant nappies, or they just go in the car. They just piss in the car, basically. So I'm assuming he did the same thing. Okay. God knows what those britches looked like when he finished. Well, maybe this explains this next bit. When he was told he'd won the bet and could stop, he got off one horse, jumped straight onto another horse and galloped off to the Rutland Arms in Newmarket for a hot bath. He sounds like quite a dude. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're going to like this bit as well. He also famously used his riding prowess for romance. At a ball he attended in Lincoln, he noticed that a young lady had been ridiculed by another lady for not wearing an orchid. (laughs) I know the feeling. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time, probably back then. Osbaldiston decided to save her honour by riding 25 miles to an orchid farm to find the young lady the best flower he could. After four hours of riding and some late-night negotiation with the owner of the orchid farm, he returned to the ball with the most glorious flower and presented it to the young lady who'd been ridiculed. The two danced together until dawn. Well, I mean, that sounds really romantic and lovely, but the fact that this dance is going on (laughs) after a four-hour ride, a negotiation with a flower seller, he comes back and they still dance... Yeah, and it actually does say in the book that he walked back into the ball covered in mud, sweating from head to foot, but carrying this amazing orchid to save this uh, this young lady's honour of being ridiculed by another woman for not having an orchid, which I thought was quite a charming story, really, even though he was sweaty and muddy. I mean... He does sound adorable, but the closest I have ever come to attending a ball has really been, I suppose, going to a wedding. And after four hours after the meal has finished, there is not one person in that room, male or female, that would be happy to accept a flower (laughs) off a sweaty man because like, they've already got their shoes off. There'll be ties wrapped around people's heads, Rambo style. They'll be dancing to Dr. Alban. And within (laughs) half an hour of arriving back, they'll be heading off to bed with only thoughts of bacon and egg for breakfast going through their head, yeah. I just got this vision of him arriving and the kind of 
uh, 1800s version of Come On Eileen playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably he got there just in time for the slow dances. Because yeah, that's yeah. that's always the way with weddings. It goes like uh, 80s stuff, then like 90s dancey stuff, and then sort of coupley kind of... Ba, ba, ba. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> then it goes my way, and, and, and then you'll have like a couple of slow dances, uh, you know, something like I Will Always Love You or something yeah. like that. Uh, New and, York, New York. Oh, New York, New York. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then there'll be like a load of still like children who are still up because they were part of the wedding, like getting overly tired and running around on the dance floor with their mums chasing after them whilst the DJ is trying to promote their DJ abilities by going, yes, this was DJ Ralph in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Cards are available at reception. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that, and there's not many of those kind of wedding songs I like, although I do love Rhinestone Cowboy when that comes on. That always works. Oh, sure. Well, I do as well, but I prefer Julian Clary's version because I <laughs> kind of like the sass. Fair enough. Well, I have to say that Osbaldiston, uh, he didn't have the greatest end, unfortunately. Uh, he became so addicted to gambling that he lost his whole family's entire fortune. Uh, and lived out his final days uh, on a small allowance of a friend and was living in St John's Wood in London. That's very sad. There's a sad end to that tale. But, you know, I I kind of feel he must have had an eventful life. You know what I mean? Well, he did have an eventful life, but, you know, just looking back and doing that kind of horse riding bet, doesn't say how much he got for doing that, but I hope the... uh, the payment was worth it but he seems true english eccentric style he probably didn't do it for the money right no no it it feels like if he was out that much like there must have been these people who are you know members of the aristocracy you know he's been voted into parliament he's out horse riding six days a week i mean he's out of boredom right i mean he hasn't yeah. He hasn't got to rock up to a Zoom call at nine o'clock on Monday yeah. morning. So, yeah, I, it just feels like a man who was in search of something to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to, uh, I guess, what's almost a British cliche. The eccentric and strange vicar. <laughs> course it is, yes, absolutely. It, it kind of, you know, and I, I was wondering, does it go back, you know, Friar Tuck? Was he the was he the start of all this, or does it go back further than that? So sure, right yeah, from Robin yeah. Hood. But you know, modern days vicar of Dibley. Uh, there's a there's a kind of eccentric vicar I would seem to remember in Blackadder, right? I see a kind of nasty vicar I seem to remember. Oh, um, um, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, I think maybe. Yeah, yeah, and there is you know again for our UK audience, there's lots of examples of classic British comedy sketch shows that feature the eccentric vicar or you know right the way from the two ronnies to monty python to pretty much every sketch show you can probably think of has had a eccentric vicar in it would you not say oh absolutely it's it's a mainstay of of british humor like uh, you you mentioned um blackadder there but one of the very first sketches that rowan atkinson 
did. I remember watching on a video that my parents had of the secret policeman's ball, and uh, it, it's a it's a sketch that he kind of created while he was at university, and it is like a vicar giving a a sermon, but it's it's like obviously a, an incredibly awkward vicar, and and it's sort of <laughs> like a it's a mirror of like the Dave Allen stuff. So uh, for people yeah. who didn't grow up in the UK and Ireland, Dave Allen was a, he was like an anti-establishment yet really safe comedian that sort of rose to fame in the seventies and had mainstream television exposure in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, he, he, he always sat on a stool with a glass of whiskey and he was missing a finger and he did, he did always smoke as well did he always have, he, yes he, have a cigarette yes he often a had a cigarette yes yes I cigarette think, and a glass of whiskey and was telling jokes that's Mad. right he did do those sketches that's he? right and he was always dressed as like a, a priest or a bishop or something and it was yeah. that sort of um he was expressing that uh sort of outrage of being brought up under the sort of catholic oppression of the schools in Ireland at the time. But yeah. it, and, and I think, like, I watched it, like, I remember watching it from about the age of 11 because my parents absolutely loved him. And it was really, it was difficult to understand, sort of coming from an atheist family who never stepped foot in a church. But then as time went on and I grew a little bit older and met people who had grown up in different religious schools like uh, my first girlfriend uh she came from a very very sort of conservative catholic household which was completely at odds with everything that i knew but suddenly after like a couple of months with her i understood what dave allen was talking about and this this desire to satirize the the church and i think that is like the that is something that is common with british people and irish people is that sort of like it's a gentle satirization it isn't like a hatred or anything it's just like nasty it's 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 quaint but there's an undercurrent to it absolutely yeah well if you were going to a fancy dress party and someone said it's like because vickers and tarts was a big thing and the first thing you'd get apart from your vickers robes was like the big vicar's teeth, right? I remember yeah, yeah. going to a vicar's and tarts party, yeah, and and yeah. yeah, you get the big vicar's teeth, and it's yeah, it's it's a it's a gentle joyfulness. There's literally no malice intended. Yeah. It's yeah. it's just the joy of kind of expression against something that you don't really feel. I think. Yeah. Well, let, let's get on to a. So they were all kind of examples of of satirized or fictional. Vickers. Let's get on to some real life eccentric vicars. And I was going to start with the Reverend Robert Hawker from Cornwall. So his eccentric behaviour started just before he was ordained. God knows why he did this. Literally, God knows why he did this. But before he was ordained, each night for a week, he perched on a rock off the coast of Bude at night. He was seen wearing only a wig made of seaweed and an oil skin uh, wrapped around his legs. Beachgoers were stunned to see him start howling at the moon and in his final performance of the week, 
he stood on the rocks and sung the national anthem. <laughs> okay, there's there's quite a lot here. So <laughs> yeah, you pick that apart. So the first thing is in the previous podcast where we were talking about cryptids, green haired yeah. sea people came oh, up quite a lot. They did, didn't they? Yes. Do you think Wow. That's so are these green haired sea all... people vicars? <laughs> are they all the Reverend Robert Hawker? So and I'm just trying to imagine. So I don't also understand what he's wearing on the lower half. Is that is that some sort of loincloth or is it a pair I, of trousers or I, I I guess it it must have my my guess is, and I don't know, my guess it it must have been some kind of oiled skin thing that was probably used by maybe fishermen because they didn't have kind of plastics and stuff in those days. I see. So, okay. I don't know if it would be seal or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And either self-oiled skin or, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm slightly, I'm busking that. I, but. I'm just trying to imagine what what he looks like. So I'm 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 sort of going to, because it helps like my getting through this he's yeah. got he's got seaweed green hair yeah. and he's got some sort of oil skin protecting his modesty yeah wrapped around his legs and modesty modesty I yeah that I, it doesn't say whether he's wearing anything on top but he's just stood on a rock at night he starts howling at the moon regularly people on the beach notice him uh, i'm not really obviously. surprised no yeah but after a week of doing this his finale was to stand there dressed like that and sing the national anthem and is that that's the british national anthem is it yeah 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 right yeah. okay well well there's more oh okay <laughs> so this was before he was ordained but when he was appointed as the vicar of morwenstow in 1835 he continued his weird kind of uh, obsession with not wearing the right attire uh, and wouldn't wear the right attire for the church, preferring to be seen in either a fisherman's jersey and sea boots or a yellow blanket with a hole cut out for his head. <laughs> I'm so glad you said head. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So this this very much reminds me of... When I was at primary school, there was a there was a like there's a group of parents right who share school journeys, and one yeah. of the parents that shared the school journey that I was on, her pièce de resistance because her, well she and her husband owned a swing pool, was to make these um, towels for kids to get changed in. So they were like big sort of bath towels but she would I know exactly what you mean you'd yeah cut a head hole with elastic yeah. in it yeah and you'd put yeah. it over and then you yeah. could get changed underneath it so i'm imagining him in my primary school changing yeah. towel i would go with that just all yellow yes um, yeah no, that's exactly what it was like 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 a uh, is it a poncho or whatever well yes it's like a swimmer's yeah. poncho yeah, exactly. So that I'm with you. I'm kind of imagining that as well. Um, yeah. So so we've established he's got quite a weird 
taste in dress, right? But he, he was also obsessed with animals. Uh, and he oh, was God. famous for... <laughs> no, nothing, nothing wrong. He was famous for walking around the parish with his pet pig. Oh, okay, that's uh, quite cute. Yeah, during his services, his dog would sit at the altar step and there were a covey of cats that would freely roam around the church. <laughs> Although he once excommunicated a cat after it caught a mouse during the service. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I thought, like, that's, that's what, what cats, cats are for. Yeah, that, he was obviously so much of an animal lover that he didn't like them hurting each other. Oh, still, though, like, yeah. okay, that makes me like him quite a lot now. He sounds like a real love. I Well, I'll, I'll come on to it though. The church itself was full of all kinds of litter, uh, including driftwood, candle ends, dead wild flowers and disintegrating prayer books and poems. One proactive curate, so assistant, decided to tidy up the church one day and as a surprise for the vicar. He swept everything up into a wheelbarrow and took it to the vicarage. The Reverend Robert Hawker was not impressed with the young man's spring clean, however, and said to the man, and I quote, Complete the pile by sitting on top of it, and we'll see the whole lot speedily got rid of. <laughs> oh, that's a sick burn, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Coming from the vicar, that must have been. Yeah. Quite like I was just cleaning up your God's house. Yeah. But I, th- I think you're right to say, I think he was generally regarded by the locals as a wonderful man. He was a bit of a hero. Uh, not only did he manage to unite and reinvigorate the village, reinvigorate the village, uh, he was also famous for sa- saving many shipwrecked mariners' lives, rescuing them from the rocks below his church. Oh, okay. I, like, I've made up my mind. I really like him. He yep. he should have been elected to parliament. He sounds yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have loved to have had tea with him. Like yeah. I, I don't really have a huge regard for members of the church in general, but I think, I think I could have warmed to him. He sounds, he sounds like a lovely human being. Do Do yeah. you have any like? It, well, there's literally no reason why you should, because these things tend to be standalone. But like, did he have parents who were in the church, or was he brought up in that way, or how I, did he I come to be know. that way? I don't know. I don't know. Did, but did, he, he, did he marry? Uh, again, there's no detail of that. Right. He, I mean, I, th- I think what it seems to me in reading his story, uh, you know, saving the mar- the mariners' lives, the way he treated animals and stuff. I think he, you know, the sanctity of life. Yeah, I, that's what I took from it. it. Seemed incredibly important to him, even even when one of his, you know, wild cats that lived in the church killed a mouse. It it, it upset him. <laughs> and Betty booted the cat out so he wouldn't do it again. Oh god. I I love him. I love him. He sounds amazing. What a guy. <laughs> well, let me tell you about another uh uh man of the cloth. The Reverend Francis Waring. So Reverend Francis Waring lived in Essex in the mid eighteen hundreds. And uh anyone who's uh sat through a church service might appreciate this. He was famous for his ridiculously short services. I he thought managed you were to say skirt. <laughs> <laughs> he managed to reduce his Sunday sermons down to two short sentences, after which he would jump run down the aisle, 
jump on his horse and take off at full sprint to conduct another two services at other churches. Fair play to him. The Reverend was loved and admired by his parishioners. His his private life was also a little bizarre. He designed his own vicarage home. The main passageway was so narrow that only one person could travel down it at a time. In fact, the Reverend, who was a rather rotund gentleman, could only travel down the corridor sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ! That's not rotund, that's enormous! Yeah, so, yeah, no, but it was so narrow that right. you couldn't, you, like, I think an, even an, only one person could get down it at a time. He was a little bit of a larger gentleman, so he could only get down it sideways. But he deliberately designed it that way. For, I don't know why, it doesn't say why. So to get to one side of his house to another, you had to go down this incredibly narrow passageway. Um, he also designed the furniture for his vicarage, uh, including frugal logs as chairs. This bit is crazy. His children ate from a trough rather than a table. He and his wife slept in a large wicker cradle that hung from the ceiling. (laughs) It gets weirder. It gets weirder. One of the weirdest things from his family life was he developed a unique bird call for each member of his family. So rather than calling them by name, he would just whistle. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> that. Do you know that sounds fine? I'm, I'm up for that. I'm up for that. That's fine. The 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 whistling vicar of Haybridge died in 1830. Is that what he was called? The wi- the whistling vicar of Haybridge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, amazing. He died, <laughs> he died. He died in 1833 and was widely mourned, not least of all by the old ship inn, his local pub, where he spent many an hour. I get the impression from reading the story, he basically spent his whole time in the pub when he wasn't in the church. He could be seen most nights walking back from the pub carrying a teapot, not full of tea, but full of the local ale, which he would carry back to the vicarage to have with his supper. This guy is a dude. He's a man (laughs) after my own heart. I love that vision of him just, you know... Stumbling home in the darkness, carrying a teapot full of bit teapot full of beer. How <laughs> who how wants br- a cup of tea? Yeah, how <laughs> British can you get? Right, <laughs> a teapot teapot full of warm beer. Oh, amazing. He also sounds brilliant. Yeah. Um, let's move on from the clergy uh, and talk about hermits. So. Uh, and I didn't realise this, but after reading the book, it seems that the heyday for hermits in England was the Middle Ages, where hundreds of them were strewn across the country, uh, living in caves or cells that seemed to be attached to church or, you know, underneath churches or in caverns and stuff like that. I, I think partly there was, uh, in the Middle Ages, it was about uh, avoiding religious persecution. Uh, but it, I think it then developed into... I don't know, into a thing, basically. Uh, and, and weirdly, in the 18th century, hermits became fashionable. Which I kind of... But I've got a story that kind of proves that. They became the equivalent, I guess, of what sea shanties are now online. Um, <laughs> they, so no fashionable country house was complete without a hermit. So... If you owned a country house, you'd put 
some space aside where, you know, a wandering hermit could come and live on their own in isolation but on your land. And it was seen as fashionable to have one. Yeah, yeah, I, I have seen this because there's a lot of English country houses who have hermitages. Hermitages, that's it, exactly. Yeah. But I think there was a thing where, like, although it was it was fashionable, there was kind of like this rule that after you'd served your time as being a hermit, you actually got pretty good benefits and pension. Well, I'm going to come on to that, okay. actually. Um, that's a very good point. Um, so let's talk about uh, the aristocrat named Charles Hamilton who actually advertised for a hermit to come and live on his estate in Cobham in Surrey. Uh, Hamilton built a hermitage in his grounds and it needed an occupant. Uh, it was quite luxurious by hermit standards. It was over two floors, the upstairs being a sleeping or meditation area. Hamilton said he would provide food and water and a handsome payout. The hermit would receive £700, which I've done the maths and that roughly equates to about £56,000 in today's money if the hermit met all his conditions. The hermit would need to live in the grotto for seven years continuously, would have to wear a camel hair robe, study the Bible and at all times be civil to anyone visiting the estate. If during the seven-year period all conditions were met and the hermit did not stray from the garden, cut his hair or nails, he would receive £700. Hmm. Hamilton struggled to find a suitable hermit, however, one man agreed to give it a go, but only lasted three weeks oh, before handing back his camel hair robe and heading for the pub. Uh, Hamilton failed to find a suitable replacement. And did he find one? No. Uh. Nobody would take him off it, which I was quite surprised at because, okay, it doesn't sound like the best existence, but if you've got to do it for seven years and you get fifty, the equivalent of £56,000... I would have thought somebody might have been tempted. Yeah, if you're a hermit I, anyway. Well, also, I think £56,000 then is different to £56,000 now. Like, 700 quid would have set you up, right? It would have... You'd have been fine for the rest of your life. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, £56,000 now is like three trips to Waitrose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Exactly. In fact, in fact, well, he didn't have to buy his food; it was provided for him. Yeah. Well, like if you if you got seven hundred quid, you could have, I would imagine, bought a house and have had plenty to live on for the rest of your days. But like, maybe the thing that he should have done is like into the deal included beer. That that feels like it was the it. stumbling block. Yeah. Yeah. But I, just the idea of advertising. For, I don't know where he advertised for one, but the fact that you would you would advertise for a hermit to come and live on your grounds just seems really bizarre. Were there any tax breaks or something? Why? 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 I don't know. I don't know. But I do. I do understand it was a thing. It was. It was like the. It was just a fashionable thing to do, wasn't it? It was yeah. like you have a dinner party. Come and look at our hermit. 
Yeah. Well, the the next story, I guess it does fit into the hermit category, but uh, I, th- I think this, this guy was more of a miser than a hermit, although he did kind of live a hermity. I don't know if that's the thing. Hermity life. Uh, it's another tale from the 18th century, and it's about a guy called Daniel Dancer, which is quite a good name, I think. Dancer became a hermit as a money-saving exercise. He had inherited a profitable farm, but refused to spend any money on the business. The farm was in the greater London suburb of Harrow Weald. Daniel Dancer decided to move out of the main farmhouse in order to save money. He lived instead in a run-down shack on the estate, choosing to sleep on old sacks. In summer... He would wait for a sunny day to wash in a nearby pond, then lay in the sun naked until he was dry. This is because he didn't want to buy soap and, uh, and wouldn't wash because of that reason. In winter, he did not wash at all. One acquaintance of his noted, and I, and I quote, Notwithstanding his solitary tendencies, he was never without a colony of insect friends attached to his person. <laughs> <laughs> friends. <laughs> while daniel lived in the shack uh, on the farm his equally frugal sister kept the farmhouse she managed to keep the weekly food bill to one piece of beef and 14 hard dumplings she once found a dead sheep which had been dead for quite a while apparently which had died of a mystery illness uh, not deterred by this, she made enough pies to last the pair for a whole month. Mystery illness pies. Yeah, but we can think about it. It's like a, a whole month. There was no refrigeration in those days, right? No. God. So you take your source material, which is, I guess, the 18th century of roadkill, um, and you make all these pies and they last you a month. God knows what the last one tasted like, let alone the first. The pair only had one friend, their (laughs) neighbour. Oh, I'm so surprised. (laughs) Yeah, the guy who hasn't washed for like six months. (laughs) Why don't you come round for dinner? We've we've got mutton pie. We're having rancid pies. (laughs) Well, their only friend was their neighbour, Lady Tempest. who helped out, helped them out when Daniel's Daniel's uh, sister was on her deathbed, and he had refused to waste money on a doctor for her. After the death of the sister, Lady Tempest kept an eye on the frugal Daniel Dancer. On one occasion, Lady Tempest took pity on Dancer and sent him a meal of trout stewed in claret. Dancer, though happy to receive the meal, had a problem about how to heat it because he refused to waste money on a fire to heat the dish up. (laughs) So instead, he sat on it until he deemed it warm enough to eat. Oh, my God. (laughs) I I mean, salmon in claret sounds disgusting enough as it is. Yeah. But warmed by butt cheeks. Yeah. I'm assuming it would, if it was was in claret, it would. I guess it would have been cooked. It just needed reheating. I, I don't know why he just didn't eat it cold, but he sat on it to warm it up. 
Do you know, this this reminds me, I have to say, there was a very short-lived and ill-informed product in the very early 90s, which I only saw once, and it was called the Bumwitch. Do you do you recall this? No. Oh, it, I think I know what's coming, but it, I know I didn't remember that. It was it was a product you could buy in petrol stations or at least one petrol station around where I lived, and it was essentially a toasted sandwich, but the way that you heated it was you sat on it while you were driving and right. and you warmed up your bumwitch and obviously obviously it's a terrible idea but that that sounds like the disgusting equivalent of a bumwitch <laughs> maybe maybe he's credited with inventing it oh salmon well, and claret jesus this, this tale has a slight twist to it actually uh daniel dancer died aged 50 in 1794 and the full craziness of his frugal behaviour was revealed, as money was found tucked away all over the farm. £2,500 was found in a dunghill in the cowshed. £600 was found in a teapot. £200 was found up a chimney, and various amounts of money were stuffed down chairs throughout the house. Jesus, that's a lot of money. The Well... <laughs> here's the twist their neighbour Lady Tempest was rewarded for her dedication to the couple as Dancer left her everything in his will the cash alone would equate to inheriting around £300,000 today wow 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 so he'd lived this frugal life they were eating kind of these weird him and his sister these dead sheep he wasn't washing uh, they would live for a week off one joint of beef, I assume, and 14 dumplings, yet they had the equivalent in today's money of £300,000 lying around the house. Oh, it's nuts, isn't it? That is nuts. That is certainly eccentric behaviour. Well, particularly as they got no one to leave it to. It's not like they're trying to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you got it, you might as well spend it. They yeah. have no children they had no you know there was no there was no lineage to kind of pass it on to it all went to lady tempest that's right that's right yeah. like when 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 i retire i've got no one to leave it to and nor is my partner we're just we're just gonna do that whole uh asset stripping of the house and i'm gonna live on fast cars and mcdonald's <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> you you won't find any money stored in a dung heap i can tell you that oh and I've been doing this podcast for you for all this time. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you the car. <laughs> my, my, all right, that'll do. <laughs> my master plan has failed. Yeah, so uh, let's move on from English eccentrics who live like hermits and uh, have tons of cash stored, stored around their house uh, uh, to... This is very short, but I just found this story from the book really intriguing. This is the story of Simeon Ellerton. So uh, a lot of the people we've talked about today have been kind of members of the aristocracy, right? Uh, but Ellerton was not a member of the aristocracy. In fact, he made his living delivering messages for the local gentry in the late 18th century. 
Simeon Ellerton insisted on uh, delivering these messages on foot. Now, I don't know if that's because he couldn't afford a horse or he just liked to do it on foot. And would regularly walk from his home in Durham to London, which is, I've calculated, nearly 270 miles. Yeah, that's Uh, a really long way, yeah. Yeah, he would do that quite regularly, but walking. Uh, Which... (sighs) I guess that's not overly eccentric, uh, nor was his desire to build his own house, because lots of people did in those days, right? What makes him an English eccentric was how he built his house. While out walking, delivering his messages, he would collect large stones. He would be seen carrying one or two large stones the size of a boulder, size of boulders on his head. <laughs> During these walks, so he'd walk. So on his walk to London, he'd spot a large boulder and think, or a massive stone, and go, "That'll be perfect in my house." And he'd just dump it on top of his head, and would be seen carrying at least two of these heavy things on his walks across the country to deliver these messages. Sometimes carrying them for over two hundred and seventy miles. Good lord, he sounds like a bit of a show off. I mean, in a good way. <laughs> in a but... good way, yeah. Um. the weird thing was by the time his cottage was finished he got so used to the extra ballast on his head that he found it uncomfortable to walk without stones perched on his head so he continued to have a couple of stones that he would just dump on top of his head whenever he walks anywhere (laughs) because he found he couldn't cope without them he got so used to it I mean, it's not paranormal, but it's very... Bizarre. It is bizarre, yeah, yeah. Well, it it did work out all right for him, though, because the cranial pressure didn't seem to do him any harm. In fact, he lived to be 104 years old. What? (laughs) 104. So that's what, in, uh, in the 1800s, that's... Uh, sorry not in the 1800s in the 18th century i mean that's a crazy age right that is a crazy age that's probably i don't know what the average age was then but it's 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 at least twice probably the uh, the average age i would have thought yeah yeah no that's that's extraordinary well i mean that just shows what exercise does yeah maybe we should all be carrying large rocks on our head. large rocks yeah yep so yeah he died at 104 in 1799 good grief so he was born in 1663 uh 1694 no. <laughs> so, there's a reason i no, didn't 1694 1693 he's 100 yes that's the one 1693 live till 1799 oh the quantum mechanics if you need help with your accountancy or tax returns don't give me your better call what was your date of birth 1503 three minutes past three perfect (laughs) I do, I do love the fact, though, because obviously he was quite a strange sight uh, with these things on his head. And he had this marvellous put-down if anybody saw him and ridiculed him. 
When a passerby would ask why he had rocks on his head, he would say, "'Tis to keep my hat on." <laughs> <sighs> to be fair, that's quite a good burn. Yeah, in, in those days, for the yeah. 1800s, that's quite a good burn, right? <laughs> it is. Like, I'm really intrigued by how long he lived. Is there any record of when he kind of stopped carrying these things and just kind of... Again, didn't walk anymore. No, it doesn't say that. But certainly while he was able, even after he built his cottage, he would still walk around with rocks on his head. And and how big was his cottage? Is there any record? It's <laughs> a very personal question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just it just feels like... If he was carrying these things, it could be quite a sizable place. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's. I think it's, well, we all know what we should get people for Christmas now, just two large rocks. Forget, forget your Peloton bikes <laughs> and your video Pelotons. All you need are two large rocks and a pair of walking boots and you're off. That is that is extraordinary. Hundred and four years old when you're born in the sixteen hundreds. That's that's nuts. It's nuts. That is nuts. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so far uh, we have focused mainly on the kind of seventeen and eighteen hundreds. Um, so uh, there are a few examples of uh, modern day English eccentrics. And I want to close by telling you about a guy called James Reeve. Uh, he was an English eccentric from Exmoor. He made it his purpose in life to collect weird and macabre objects. So I'm going to give you a list of some of the things that he had around his house. He owned a skull picking its teeth with a lobster claw. Go figure. I don't know why. He had a stuffed ferret that was swallowing a mouse. In his bathroom, there was dried snake skin for guests to be able to rub themselves down with. I don't know what the benefit of dried snake skin is. In his library, there was a hairless baby monkey, and he also owned, that was also in the library, a pickled hand which was uh, displayed under a glass dome. Wait, a, a a pickled hand? What, a pickled human hand? Pickled human hand, yeah. Jesus Christ. I'm going to come on to that because it does... I, I, ha, I do know where he gets the pickled hand from and that's quite a bizarre story in itself. Okay, but <coughs> right now, this is putting me off Branston. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And and I love Branston. Yeah, so, Branston, Branston Pickle, they don't use pickled hands. We want to make it clear. Um, in his dining room he had two preserved heads where I don't know why placed next to a paper mache toadstool and a china ornament of a buxom lady cradling a sailor on her lap His his bizarre collection started when he was a monk living in a monastery (laughs) this is so bizarre so in the UK, there is a magazine called Country Life, which uh, I guess it's for the 
well-to-do gentleman and lady of the countryside, right? That's yeah. Oh, the yes. Describing yes. it. Oh, yes. That that it seems that the adverts in there are mostly for houses that are two million pounds plus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, James Reeve was not that rich as he was a monk living in a monastery but he saw the he saw an advert in country life i don't know if that was the only magazine they had in the monastery but it seems like a strange choice and it was asking if anyone out there could provide a home for an old staircase he replied and said he would take the staircase and it duly arrived at his parents home in a large truck However, he didn't tell his parents about this. So they wake up one morning and there's this huge truck that's got this massive old uh, spiral staircase from a country home. So, you know, it's these, as Ben said, the houses in there are kind of two million up. So this thing would have been huge. So it just turns up on his doorstep, on his parents' doorstep. So at that point, weirdly, he decided that the life of a monk was not for him. So he, did, he dedicated his life to roaming the world and collecting what he describes as the curious. So curious objects. Even his sister helped him with his collection. She was the one, Ben, who picked up the pickled hand. She got it off some nuns during a trip down the Amazon. So that is the the Amazon <laughs> rain. That's the Amazon rainforest. It was not something they provide online. Um, yeah, apparently, in the Amazon where she went, there was a nunnery, and the nuns had made quite a, a good living by selling pickled hands to tourists. Now they're. they're the, uh, the author of the book tried to find out where these pickled hands actually came from, but nobody quite knew the source of them. I mean, it's quite a thing, isn't it? Like, the pickled hand. That, oh, it's a nunnery. Would you like a pickled hand? <laughs> yeah, we've got a pickled hand. Well, the other th- weird thing about it is James Reeve claims that... Since owning the pickled hand, it had grown hair and its nails had also kept growing. Oh, God. Which would freak you out, right? That's bordering on paranormal with a big... Yeah, yeah, it is. Absolutely, yeah. That's awful. Can you imagine coming down and then you've got this... Hold on a second. My hand in the pickled hand is grown hair and its nails are twice as long. Oh, no. That's gross. Uh... Well, I just I just close with so so basically this guy James Reed decided to travel around the world, and it seems like his sister helped him and just collect the weirdest things that he could. He also had a, a, a near death experience while he was on a trip uh, to uh, add some stuff to his collection. On a visit to Yemen, he decided to close the door of the great mosque inadvertently blocking the path for a funeral party. This resulted in him being attacked by 50-plus holy men. (laughs) So he basically, he stood there, closed the door, because I think he wanted to get a photograph, and he thought it would look better with the door closed. He closed it just at the point where a funeral procession was about to enter the mosque. 
Um, and yeah, so about 50 holy men ran after him and beat the crap out of him, basically. Good God. <laughs> Would that... This this is extraordinary. So, like, what was his like? What? Why did they chase him? What was what was their impetus for persecuting him? Well, I think he basically he just chipped up in the middle of a funeral, whether knowingly or unknowingly. You know, the door was open to let the uh, the deceased and the funeral party enter, and he decided that. Uh, in order to get a better quality picture, it would look better for his photograph that he was taking with the door closed. So, <laughs> slammed it closed and basically stopped the funeral party coming in. I guess such a holy place, the Great Mosque in Yemen, that um, yeah, a few people took exception to it and chased him off. So this is like this is a time when photography is, you know, yeah, accessible. I, 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 well, the the book that I've been quoting a lot of stories from today came out in 1991, and there is a picture of James Reeves in it. Now, it doesn't say when the picture was taken, but I assume it, by the look of the clothing and his environment, I'd say, you know, mid-80s to the late 80s. Okay, okay. So, sort of relatively 19, contemporary. 1980s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I, I, I got you. No. Sixteen eighty. No. Yeah. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So you, what we've got is a whole bunch of people who have slightly yeah, they've caused offense to people and have been persecuted, but we don't really know how they caused the offense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I gotta say that the book it, the book is great, and there, there's a whole host of crazy stories in there. So I've, I've only managed to uh, nip out a few. <laughs> there was a great one of a woman, uh, again, I think around the 1800s, who insisted that her coffin was lined with her unwashed handkerchiefs to, oh, remind, to remind her of happy sneezing. This was in her will. Um she also insists that rather than people throw uh, flowers over her while she was in the coffin, that they that they threw snuff instead. They threw what snuff? Snuff, you know, like the tobacco stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. So she wanted that thrown in the coffin rather. No, you know, it was just like the, the perfect funeral thing. No flowers. Normally, we say no flowers. Just donate to charity. She said no flowers. I just want tobacco-based snuff. <laughs> that's so... That's just so weird. Like, it, I've I've tried snuff. Have you, have you had snuff? I haven't, no, no. It's awful. It's yeah, really, it's, it's, uh, really terrible. Well, like, maybe, maybe that's where all the unwashed handkerchiefs that she was... That her coffin was lined with came from, because yeah. maybe they, she was just a big snuff addict. Well, that sounds yeah. wrong. <laughs> well, maybe, but it's it's like a really fine sort of tobacco powder, obviously, and then you put it on your finger and you snort it up. Yeah, and it, like you get this horrible sneezing sensation, and then you sort of 
like bring up a whole load of phlegm and then at the same time you get like this buzz and like it's it's there's nothing good about it there's really nothing good about it it makes no sense at all no Um, the other the other there's lots of other stories in there about uh uh, weird animal obsessions by the aristocracy Uh, my favorite one was uh the lord who had lots of animals but was often seen riding his pet crocodile around his estate in England. <laughs> oh my God! Often seen riding the pet cro- pet crocodile. But in those days, I guess you know people. I guess like ninety nine percent of the population would have never seen one. Can you imagine seeing that? No. It would be like you know the equivalent of you know somebody chipping up at a dinner party with. A grey, an alien grey, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, oh, a hundred percent, yeah. But I, I feel really sorry for the crocodile. Yeah, like somebody sat on its back and, and rode it around the estate, r- riding it around. Yeah, I mean, crocodiles aren't built for, <laughs> for being ridden. Yeah, they, they're not. They've not got a natural saddle for a back, have they? No, no, they haven't. No, it just. Like just feels wrong, and like, how would you direct it? Like horses, you've got the reins. Well, but... there is there is um, there is a, a a picture of him just sitting on it, but it's from it's from a, obviously it's not a photograph because it was uh, seventeen whatever. But um, an artist did a picture of him doing this, but in the picture he seems to be using the crocodile's front arms as a way of guiding it but I, i'm not sure that's technically possible so uh, it's probably mm. it's i do prob- i do feel sorry reasons. well the 17 and 1800s i'm not sure were a high point in animal welfare were they really no no, no. i just i just feel really sorry for the crocodile i think that's awful yeah. like it's not built to have and i'm presuming he's not a slim gentleman he's going to well, be Actually, in the picture, he does look one of like one of the the slimmer versions of the aristocracy. Uh, yeah, no, he looks he looks quite fit. But again, he probably commissioned an artist to do right. the picture, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Who yeah. knows? Who knows? Well, I've got to say, I I loved that book. So it's called English Eccentrics. It's by the late great John Timpson. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier, it, it is out of print, but you can pick yourself up a second-hand copy. So uh, search it out. I think they were going on Amazon for about four or five quid, and it's a hardback book. So it's it's fascinating and very entertaining. Okay, that sounds like a good deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, I think we've concluded that us English and British can be a weird eccentric bunch, can we not? Not just in the 17th and 18th uh, century, but that does seem to be the heyday of English eccentricity. Yeah, yeah, and and do you know what? I applaud all of them. I don't, I don't necessarily applaud people that sat on the back of crocodiles because that does seem yeah. a bit mean. But yeah. like everybody else, sure. Go well, for uh, it. If if the guy on the back of the crocodile had applauded himself, 
if he was holding the animal's front legs, that could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> well, it, it would have been poetic justice yeah. if yeah. the crocodile would have eaten him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it that seems that seems right. But yeah, no, I think I think you're you're right. This is this is like the country we live in is full of eccentrics still. Yeah. And they do mad and crazy things. I think it's in our DNA. But talking of um, weird animals, I did see uh, a bit of an update to a story that you featured last week on our episode on uh, alien big cryptids. Oh, yeah. And alien big cats. Yeah. So if you didn't hear that episode, it's a good one. Go back and have a listen. Uh, but Ben was talking about a story in uh, Puglia, right, in Italy, yep. where the mayor of that town had was uh, stopping people from going out because uh, there seemed there was a black panther that was spotted and was on the loose. Uh, I did see a bit of an update to that story. And weirdly, it tied into something that uh, we did talk about in the podcast. You remember we talked about um, Pablo Escobar? And his hippos and the yep, fact that they'd escaped. Yep. Well, the theory is that this Black Panther in Puglia in Italy is real um, and it belonged to a local mafia boss and it managed to escape and was roaming around the countryside by the, uh, by the town. Interesting, interesting. So there's 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 truth in it and 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 of course like the um the hippos that we were talking about uh that are the sort of the pets of pablo escobar it, it's very similar yeah yeah very similar i think it, it must be i guess a bit like some of these kind of aristocracy from the 17 and 18 hundreds of just owning something exotic uh is i guess a symbol of your power your wealth and i guess entertaining to them yeah if people yeah. come round and visit right and quite yeah. intimi- quite intimidating if you're a mafia boss to just be sat there with a kind of black panther at your feet yeah that yeah would, that that would intimidate me let alone the fact it was a mafia boss right yeah, no, I think so. I think so. And it and it's quite different to oh, I've I've got a pair of guinea pigs. <laughs> uh, I, it'd be better though, if I was a mafia boss, I would think I don't need to compensate with a big powerful animal. I I just think like a little cute toy poodle would do it for me. Yeah, but maybe maybe a lot of them. Like maybe maybe if you were gonna be intimidating as a mafia boss, maybe you go right. I'm gonna have three thousand guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you'd sit in a high backed chair in the middle of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet that. Then I'm thinking of that scene from The Godfather where the guy ends up with the horse's head in his bed. A guinea pig head in your bed wouldn't be as scary, though, would it? No, no. Well, just a guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, on its own, that'd be scary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whilst you you're wearing a uh, a necklace of cucumber. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, that old mafia torture technique. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't in Goodfellas, good fellas, was it? <laughs> yeah, torture it with the cucumber. The <laughs> I'll tell you anything, anything. Get the guinea pig off me. <laughs> he, he, he's on his wheel. Squeaker, 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 squeaker. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, bet. Ben sleeps with the rodents. (laughs) (laughs) I do love a rodent. By the way, did you know, this is something that I only found out, uh, what year are we in, 2021? I found out last year. Uh, Because I do, although I am a big animal lover, I do like eating rabbit, which is a bit of a dichotomy. But did you know the rabbit contains such few... Um, like uh, nutrition, nutritional elements. Yeah, that uh, you would die if you just that rabbit. What if you just lived off it? If you just lived off it, you couldn't live off it. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I'm slightly no. worried as well because in that animal episode, you put out an appeal for anyone who may have seen. The giant rabbit that you were told about in your childhood. I did, I did, I, yeah. I'm slightly worried that was for culinary purposes <laughs> rather than paranormal research. No, no, I like a giant rabbit stuffed with a lamb, <laughs> stuffed with a baby goat, stuffed with a pheasant. Is that, oh. is, that, is that the kind of weird equivalent of a bird in a bird in a bird? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course it is, yeah. And, and like, if I can make that viable, Waitrose will take me up on it. <laughs> oh, you're going to have to have a big freezer. Um, <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I think we should, uh, we should close. It's fitting that we're closing being rather eccentric Englishmen. And we will see you next week on The Quantum Mechanic. We'll see you next time. the quantum mechanics.